we are just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best. You think you guys gave me like two extra minutes. I'm gonna try to be faithful with those two extra minutes. Um, we are uh, <clears throat> picking up kind of near where, where we left off and, in, and to save me from having to wear out my arms with my extra large um, Bible coffee table book, uh, we're nice enough to actually have the picture for you this week. Thanks, Mike, for making that suggestion. So we are, over the next month, maybe a little longer, going through um, the book of Ephesians. The season of the church calendar is a time for growth, and Paul's letter to the Ephesians uh, couldn't be a better one to go through. So um, Paul's letters like 1 Corinthians or Philippians or Galatians, if you've, if you've read the other letters, they're, they're usually pretty specific and, and he's writing them in response to like a particular need in that church. Um, but Ephesians is kind of different. It kind of reads like an essay and it's a summary statement of Paul's kind of whole vision and unique calling um, that Jesus gave him to announce the lordship and reign of Jesus that extends over the non-Jewish world and that Jesus was making a new family, uh, a new covenant. So you kind of see two halves, right? So the first part is kind of like the gospel story. And then the second part is kind of, okay, well, what does that mean for us as followers of Jesus and a family and a community? And then you see there's a little box in between the two that says, therefore, um, that you could substitute that with Diane's favorite, so that, right? So we're going to spend a, you know, a, a few weeks kind of on each half, and you probably can't see it because it's pretty small up there, but there's, um, there's a little bitty section right here, and that's kind of what we're going to, um, which is uh, our, our topic for today. Um, it is going to be the beginning of Ephesians. Um, and if you weren't here before, basically what happens is, you know, Paul gives him a greeting and then he has this beautiful poem um, that's about the Trinity that you can go and look through. Um, and he opens with this beautiful poem. And, and what we're going to explore today is in verses 15 and following. And y'all, this is really rad because, you know, we do the Lord's Prayer together every week, but this is a prayer. So this is the section that we're in. It's, it's a prayer, and he's going to pray for the church and for these Christians who live in and around Ephesus. And, you know, I don't know, like prayer may be a, a, a practice for you that, that happens all the time. It may be something that just happens like maybe at the end of church or when you're hanging out with people. Um, but he's got a specific purpose for this new family and um, it's, it's just got some amazing tidbits in it. So I'm really excited to look through it. <clears throat> um, and it's got the kinds of things that we could, should be praying for each other in church and as a community. So if you're like, man, when we come to this moment that we have at the end of church or when we meet in a community group and you're just kind of like, ah, you know, we're going to pray for each other, but I don't really know what to pray. Total cheat code day. Okay. So this is just going to be your cheat code. Um, but, but first I want to tell a short story, um, of an example of the kind of life, um, that Paul is praying for. Um, and, and we're going to see he's praying for like a new kind of living that would kind of emerge in these Christians and the churches and the kind of life that Paul has in mind um, Pat, if you could go, um, I'm going to tell you who he is in just a second, but um, there is a foundation called the Bethel Foundation, um, and, it, and it's based out of Europe, and um, 
it was it was founded by um, this guy's dad. I'm gonna, my, I didn't take German in high school, so I'm probably going to butcher this if you're familiar with it. But it's it's Friedrich von Bodelschwing. You can say that ten times fast. Okay, so this is this is the younger. All right, so he didn't found it. It was founded in um, Bethel began in 1867, and it was a Christian community for people with epilepsy. Okay, um, but. By 1900, it included several facilities that cared for thousands of physically and mentally um, disabled persons. And um, Friedrich, they call him the Younger. It's not, I don't know why it's not Junior, but if you Google it, you're going to want to Google Friedrich the Younger, and he'll pop right up. He's at the top, and this is a picture of him. Um, He took it over when his father passed away, and by the 1930s, y'all, get this, it was an entire town. So it had grown from just like a dozen people that they were, you know, they were, they were dealing with epilepsy to a whole working town. So we're talking like churches and schools and factories and farms and shops and housing for patients and nurses and caregivers. Um, and at the center, like there was this hospital and care facility, um, even orphanages. And if you're familiar with Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he, he considered this town in Germany, and it was, a, it was a whole town, a whole community, um, as the antithesis of what the Nazi worldview was. That exalted power, it exalted strength, right? And it was this, gos- he called it uh, a gospel-made-visible fairy tale landscape of grace. So almost like walking into the gates of Disneyland or Disney World, right? Except... Um, where the physically and mentally disabled were cared for in just a Christian atmosphere. And this little community um, is living under the reign of a different king than the rest of the country. And you know how this plays out, right? In the, in the late 20s and early 30s, this is when the Nazis were coming to power and the Third Reich is gaining momentum in Germany and Hitler seizes power. And we're talking about a whole culture, like an entire culture that came to see it as a good idea for the progress of the human race, that we need to kind of exalt certain values and eradicate others. And I mean, it's well known that millions of Jewish people um, were, were murdered during the Second World War by the Nazis, but you might not be familiar with that they went after all of the mentally and physically disabled people because they had this idea of like the perfect human. And if you didn't fit that ideal, what they called it was uh, mercy killings. So you can imagine how this town might have felt and how Friedrich, who was in charge of it, uh, might have felt when the entire culture around them turned into this thing that literally threatened their existence. And his life was threatened, he was thrown in jail, But they made it through the entire war with this town intact, uh, the the people alive, and it was just such a bubble, an untouchable bubble, that it it exists to this day. Like you could go, you Google Bethel Foundation, you can look at their history. It is, it might not be the largest in the world, but it's definitely the largest Christian organization in Europe that has dedicated their entire mission to um, serving the the physically and, and mentally disabled populations of those areas. So you can, you can drop that, Patrick. Thanks for the, there's Friedrich. So 
So, um, and, and I say all that because there's this guy living in the bubble of a Nazi culture that um, is a community that lived totally different, right? Where the weakest were actually exalted as the most important and the people who were worthy of the most dignity. And it's just a gospel-centered world that, that existed in the middle of a totally different culture. Um, and I would love to challenge us to say that that's actually the kind of life, the kind of thing that Paul is going to be praying for uh, in this paragraph we're about to read. And it's the kind of life that looks like, that, that looks at the landscape of our culture and says, my allegiance, first and foremost, is to King Jesus. And whatever powers may exist in our culture that are, that are starting to elevate certain things, right, that, that those don't get to define my worldview as a follower of Jesus. And my culture no longer has the power over me to decide for me um, the things that need to be elevated or not because our allegiance and value is to something else. And Paul's vision is that this prayer would generate little little Disney World, little fairy tale lands and pockets in the churches um, that he's praying for. So um, let's dive into this prayer. If you have a Bible, great. If not, um, I'm going to read it. It's, we're in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, it starts with verse 15, and this is, this is Paul writing um, to the churches in Ephesus. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. Okay, so let's just stop here and pause because there's a number of of interesting things that I want to point out. Um, So basically, at this point, like Paul's in prison. I think he's, he's, he's somewhere else. He started these churches. And while he's in jail, he's hearing... Uh, about the lives of these Christians and the churches that he helped start. And so you can imagine these are people he knew. These are people that he was friends with, that he hung out with. Um, And so he hears reports, and they're good reports. And he hears two things, right, about how they're doing. The, The first thing he says, I heard about your faith in Jesus. And the second thing he hears about is their love um, for God's people around them. And, you know, when we hear faith, a lot of times we think of like a belief um, or something that happens in your brain, but that's that's not um, that that's not the type of faith that what he's talking about here is about allegiance and loyalty. Um, to place your faith in Jesus is about recognizing that He's Lord and gets my allegiance and devotion. And it's something it's not it's not just something that happens in your brain, but it's something that is immediately connected to how you live your life. And, you know, the second thing is he's hearing about their love for all of the people around him. And, you know, love in our culture, it's like, you know, I love pizza, or I fell in love, or I fell out of love. Like, love is just a real squishy word here. But in in the Bible's description of love is very different. So it's a commitment if we were going to if the bible if we looked up in the bible dictionary in the back of your bible and looked for love like this is probably going to be a close definition it's a commitment to act for the well-being of another person ahead of my own well-being and love is supposed to be like the key mark of a follower of Jesus because if you're given allegiance to Jesus who loved me he gave up his life for me Jesus followers are marked as people who do this for others 
And so Paul is getting information, and, and this is what Paul, Paul prays for. So look at what he's saying. Um, he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing this. You guys are doing great. You're, you're following Jesus, your allegiances to him. You're loving, you're, you're loving each other, and I'm hearing about all this stuff, and I haven't stopped giving thanks for you. I'm remembering you. And um, he says, I, I, I haven't stopped praying for you, so I keep praying for you. Now, this is really profound. Like, it could be easy just to, like, go, okay, cool, he's praying for him, great. Um, it, and this is, this is the uninsight to prayer, I think, that we can take from this. Um, because prayer, I think, for most of us, and at least, at least it was in my life, prayer is mostly like crisis management, right? That's what you turn to when things get hairy or things get bad or life gets difficult or there's something Something bad. So just think about the language that we use or the times that we bring up prayer. We need like so-and-so needs your prayers. They're really sick right now. Or there's a tragedy that happens and there's always the like the thoughts and prayers thing that happens, right? And, um, but that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying is, uh, well, look at what he's saying. He's saying, you guys are doing awesome, so I've not stopped praying for you. So he takes our idea of prayer, something you do when there's kind of a crisis or something going wrong, and he flips it on his head. And he says, no, prayer, prayer is just adding fuel to the fire that's already, imbo- that's already burning, because it. It's important in times of crisis. I'm not saying when, when somebody's sick or somebody's hurting or there's a tragedy that happens, we shouldn't pray then. Um, but, but look at what he says. So let's, let's look at the things that Paul prays for. So um, in verse 17, he says that, I pray that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. So that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Um, and to the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. Okay, so it's Bible wordy. Gotta love Paul. Um, but he's, he's asking for a couple things. Okay, so he prays for... Um, he prays for a few things, and he prays for God-given wisdom. So essentially, whatever circumstances are in their lives, that this becomes an opportunity for them to draw closer to Jesus. So when we, when we pray for people, a lot of times it's like, how can I pray for you? And you'd be like, oh, well, my knee. Okay, so we pray for your knee, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but Paul's give us, giving us an example that's like, he doesn't mention their circumstances. He's not like, hey, Ephesus, I'm praying for you because I know Margie's kind of old and her memory was getting kind of weird. And, and Bob, the Greco-Roman, you know, he injured his let. Like, he's not, he's not going into those specifics. He's just saying that, that, that he's praying for them to have God-given wisdom so that whatever circumstances are in their lives, that this becomes an opportunity for them to draw closer to Jesus. So that you may know him better and then there's a lot of other religious language. But one thing I think that's important is whatever Paul's praying for, that God would give us a new quality of insight into our relationship with Jesus. Um, he prays for whatever life circumstance happens, that God's presence would enlighten something in them, that they would get some wisdom 
out of whatever circumstance that they're going through. And, you know, I mean, think about it. Like, think about being in a, maybe a town, and when the Nazis come knocking at the door with guns, like, you're likely to think, like, where are you, God? <laughs> like, Jesus, have you abandoned us? Like, we're trying to do the right thing following you. And, you know, I don't know. I would imagine that he had to pray prayers that would help him to see, like, where is God what is, he, what is he doing even in this circumstance that, that, feels, that feels bleak? Um, and, okay, so, so that's number one. He, he prays for that. And let's see, number two. Let's see, okay. Oh, yes, all right. Sorry, I got a little distracted there. Um, he called you the riches. Okay, so this next one, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. Okay, so, so the first one is um, that he prays for hope. And we spent a lot of time kind of in the, the season of Easter talking about this hope, but essentially it boils down to, you know, if um, this posture of hope is just having a conviction that my present circumstances, so what we're going through in our life right now, does not determine the meaning of my life. And whatever the present state of the world is, does not determine the meaning of my life. And Christian hope is about the fact that in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, if, if I'm a Christian, I have to be open to the fact that my life may be difficult. And the state of the world might be terrible, but I believe in a God who brings life out of death, who, who came among us personally to, to bear the result of all of the stupid, selfish things we do on the cross and reverse that into life that can spread out from us. And He's doing it right here in the present, like in the midst of our broken world, with the promise that like, even when death happens, that that doesn't get the final say. So whatever my present is doesn't determine my meaning. And my hope, if, if our hope as followers of Jesus is in something outside of us that can't be taken from us, then that's what he's praying for them to have. So all of that stuff that we talked about back then, if you missed it, I'm sorry, go back and listen um, after Easter. But that when, we, when we put our hope in something that can be taken from us, our family, our jobs, our anything, right, then you lose your meaning in life when that thing disappears. And what he's praying for is for them to have their hope uh, in Christ in the right thing. Okay, so trying to cook here. The second thing he prays for is that they might know and understand the riches of his glorious inheritance. Now, I, can, I know, Paul, it's like, it's, could, you, could you just put the cookies on, boy, the cookies on the low shelf so we can, we can easily get to them? Um, essentially what he's doing is he's borrowing Old Testament um, ideas and language that was used, that God used to describe his people. And the idea here is that is not that God just happens to really like ancient Israelites better than anybody else, okay? It's just the idea here of um, election. So in, to sum it up, in order to reach and bring blessing and redemption to everyone, he starts by redeeming and rescuing someone. That then 
everyone would be blessed from that act, okay? Um, And Paul's deep conviction is that the covenant family of God, right, began with redeeming Israel, has actually come to fulfillment in Jesus. And then that God, um, for anyone who follows Jesus, right, they are now included into that family. So I used to think, like Paul's language like this, um, that that he would be praying that, you know, we would experience the richness of heaven once we died. It's going to be terrible here, but then we're all going to go and get our McMansions, depending on how good you did with the job that you had here on earth. Um, but that's not, that's not what he's praying for. He's praying that these people, that the church would wake up to the fact that we are God's people that we're part of a family, that we're part of the family. And it's both a privilege that we can open our eyes to that, but it's also a challenge and a calling that's, that's connected to the last one. Um, okay, and this is, this is kind of where all the goodies are and we're coming, coming, coming to a head here. So, okay, great myth for those who believe. Um, Okay, he called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? Okay, so I don't know what you think of when you hear the word power, right? Um, In our cultural setting, when we hear the word power, you know, it can come with some baggage because of people who abuse power, right? I don't have to give you a, a story, you just... We all, we have plenty. Inside the church, outside the church, um, usually somebody being like, man, there's such a powerful person, like doesn't come with a lot of positive imagery or connotation, okay? And we gotta be careful, right? Because, you know, depending, depending on how you, you hear this, I like to call this blank check theology. Like I've heard it before, you've probably heard it before, and it's just this kind of idea, right, that God's got this big bank account somewhere in the sky, in the heavenly realm, and all you need to do is ask for it and write the check, right? You've probably heard it. If you haven't heard it, it's out there, okay? Um, and you know what? For some people, like maybe they pray for all kinds of stuff and they really want God to like bankroll their dreams and those things happen to happen. And you know what? That's great for them. But honestly, that's not how most of life goes <laughs> for most of us. Um, our dreams don't come true, right? And maybe our prayers for that particular thing um, don't get answered, and we thought it was going to be one way, but it turned out to be like a completely way entirely. And, you know, I don't know, but a lot of people who, who are, are told like that blank check kind of theology, that happens, and one of two things happen. Either there's crisis of faith, and they walk away because they thought God was going to, I don't know, make them an influencer or something, um, or they have to wrestle with it and figure out what the truth is. And I think there's a very specific kind of power that he's talking about. And if you kind of have the eyes to see it, he, he deals with the, the misunderstanding because it's almost kind of like he says power, like you have access, I'm praying for power for you and then realizes, oh no they're probably not gonna understand what I'm saying. So he clarifies, right? So great power, 
And then he says, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, um, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, so... Um, the power that's available to us is the same power that transformed the death of Jesus into resurrection. And what's going on here is Paul has this whole story in his mind, and he, the story he actually tells is he's talking about like this present age, right, and then the age to come. And what is all that about? Like, what's, what's going on there? So you and I live in what he calls the present age. And he calls it, you know, the age of sin and death. And so, you know, it's God's good world. And, and it's been deeply compromised and screwed up by selfish humans. And, you know, there's just a billion people who are all trying to act you know, whether or not they want to in their best interests, okay? Um, and that, so that's the age of sin and death. And part of the story he's trying to tell in all of his letters for him is basically a way of telling the story of the gospel is that the age to come is actually come crashing into ours presently now. Not that, like, we get a get-out-of-jail card once we die. Like, that, that it, it, it's the prayer that we prayed, right? Your kingdom come on earth today, like crashing in. And, and it's as if God has in Jesus like come along as the one human being who was not compromised by sin, doesn't give in to all the impulses that we all give into every day, and he actually lives as the kind of human that God had in mind, right? And then he lives on our behalf, he dies on our behalf, and then on the cross, he just absorbs the collective mess, right? So the resurrection of Jesus and the, the power, and where we're headed here, is, is God's power, it's not like power to do whatever the heck we want, right? Um, it's the kind of power, and this is super important, like I want, I want us to get this, like it's, it, it's not a power that looks like we're gaining rights and authority and influence and we can get our way. If the death and resurrection of Jesus is supposed to be an example of power, it's not a power to like bankroll our dreams. It's the kind of power that gives up status, that gives up rights, and the authority to like take the hit on behalf of others, and it allows the brokenness of others to crush him. And his love and mercy for like terrible people is so strong that he now has the power to reverse death into life, and that's what the resurrection is about. So the power to make the most tragic, sinful, selfish human beings and turn them into something that's actually life-giving, you know, because Jesus rose from the dead and whatever power God exerted when Jesus was raised is our hope 
that that's going to happen for us too. And it's not just, just about physical death, right? So, you know, there's patterns of behavior in all of our lives and, and relating to each other. And what Paul is asking us to, to consider is that we actually have hope that in this like present state that we're in, whatever we're dealing with, that we would have faith to entertain the idea that God has the power to reverse those things that bring death into life. A place of power to heal and transform people. And if us getting together as believers means anything at all, right? It's getting together for hope and love with with the promise that like no matter where that struggle is or no matter where that death is, the power here isn't like, man, I'm going to be powerful and rich and get all my dreams. The power here is that those places of life that are death can be reversed, right? Um, okay, so man... We could, we could go on super deep for just about, I just want to hit like one quick thing because I, I think it's important because he talks about powers and you know, like there's, as a church and from a quick Christian worldview, you know, in Paul's mind, this is important because throughout his letters, we've got, we've got three things going wrong. And I'll just try to sum it up real quick and just jump over. And if you want to get together and talk about demons and stuff sometime, let's go for it. But he talks about the flesh, okay? And that's just like our personal capacity to screw things up. Like where we make mistakes, where we make choices, where you're like, oh man, I keep making this decision. I don't want to make this decision. Or relationally, like you know you're talking to somebody and you know they're going to say that thing and you really should keep your mouth shut, but they say it anyways and you snap and you say something like sarcastic or cutting or whatever you do, like just there's within us the capacity to cause trouble, right? So that's the flesh. That's us, okay? Well, and then there's, there's the powers and there's the devil. So, you know, we believe that this, you know, what we, our four senses, like there's more going on than just that. And I'm probably not the first person to tell you that. If I am, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. You know, if we went back 500 years and I tried to talk to you about like quantum theory and, and string theory and black holes, like you would think that I was, I was smoking some stuff. So all that to say is that there are things that influence. And then there's what he calls the world and I'll, I'm, I'm going to just try to sum it up like this. Individually, we have the capacity to do wrong. There are also forces at play that in this thing, Paul is saying, Jesus is now the boss. Like he, he's in charge if you're a follower of him. Like he has more power and authority than any of those things. And if you're wondering like, man, what are, what are you, where is even the evidence of that? Well, there's small scale. You can turn on the news and see that. And then there's large scale which can be harder to see. So just like Friedrich, right, the larger scale in his area was there was a cultural thing that then made it okay for there to be oppression, 
inequality, and death. And usually those are the three telltale signs. So if, you're, if we like zoom out, we jump ahead 100 years and look back at this point in time and our point in time and go, what are the things, the systems that lead to inequality, that lead to oppression, and that lead to the loss of life? And whether it's the Rwandan genocide or Nazi Germany, you can zoom back and say, we have a theology that says there is something evil taking advantage of the collective you know, blind spots or evil in people and making things worse. And the hope that he's saying, and he goes on later in Ephesians, right? Remember, armor of God, sword, our, our battle's not against flesh and blood, right? Our enemy is not somebody with skin and bones. Um, to, just to say, right, um, that there are some large-scale cultural things that, that happen. And what he's saying is that, like, this church, his prayer for them is that their culture would be under Jesus and not under whatever those other things at work are. So I get excited about this as a church because I don't like to use the matrix as an example, but it's kind of one of those things that like once you look through history and you look and you see cultures that like, man, Germany in the late 1800s was like the pinnacle of Europe, like in every area, art and technology and all of this stuff. And it's like, it only took 15 years to go as bad as it did. And there are, there are things culturally happening around us that lead to death, that lead to oppression, that lead to inequality, and to go to have like this encouragement where he's encouraging them to be a little Disneyland, <laughs> to be a different, different, different community, a little fairy tale pocket of grace that no matter what the culture does or says like, hey, this is the thing, like Jesus is going to be the one leading us. And that, that's the kind of church I want to be because it's not going to fit culturally. They didn't fit in Germany culturally, but they were living out following Jesus and being in like a little fairy tale pocket of um, the church. So, um, yeah. I think if we can get this whole worldview thing going and we're convinced that because Jesus is king, we'll do life differently. And if we believe that people's lives value and people have dignity because of what happens when Jesus is king. So people can discover who they are, their humanity, that they're loved by their creator God, and like, this is what Paul is praying for. So, hey, I did it. Um, just some, some opportunities for reflecting on kind of like what this might mean. You know, I don't know the areas personally for you. You know, you could list the big three if you wanted to go there. Like, what is it? The money, sex, and power. You know, those are kind of the big three. Um to reflect and consider where do I profess like I'm following Jesus, but my life does not reflect that I'm following Jesus. Um, my life in, in some area reflects like I'm controlled by the power, whatever the powers are, but it's not like Jesus is the king of that area. And then to consider like, you know, 
there are value systems that we can't see because we can't, like, we can't see the grid that our culture can impose on us. And what would it look like for us to even just start small, you know, and consider like what, what Jesus are you calling our culture to be, like this family's culture? Because we can make it. There's a few of us to where like it can be what we want it to be and then solidify it. And as we move through this, like this is we're going to be called to a type of identity and church and community that can grow out from that spot. And, you know, um, I think sometimes it can be difficult because there are places or strongholds or things or stuff that maybe happened in our past that you're like, Brad, you don't know my history. Like, this is really painful. I've asked for prayer for a million times. But we're going to pray for each other in a second. And you can use this grid if you want, right? And it's not just like Jesus changed the circumstance, but he can turn that death thing into life. And then he wants to meet us in that place and through the process. So, um, yeah, because I think the good news is that not only individually do we have access to a life-changing power as a church, but collectively, we could be a more faithful witness to the reign of King Jesus in our life. And I think that's just, I know it's only just a few verses, but it's dense and it's Paul and we're going to keep going through it like that. So the first half, like I said, is kind of like, what does this mean kind of for us? And then we'll get to the so that, and then we'll kind of move on. But um, yeah, if you're able, would you stand we're going to take a couple minutes and pray for one another. We've been doing a thing, and we are, we're going to keep doing it. So...